episode is provided to you by Clara Labs. Clara Labs is making it easier for you to focus on the things that matter by providing a 24-7 virtual assistant to handle all of your scheduling needs. Here's how it works. All you have to do is CC Clara in your email thread, and Clara will take it from there. Clara is responsive, reliable, and simple to use. For more information, visit www.claralabs.com. This episode is brought to you by Flatiron School. Flatiron School is an outcomes-focused coding boot camp offering the best in software engineering education online and in New York City. For more information, visit flatiron500.com or check out the Giants of Crowns partners page at www.giantsofcrowns.com forward slash partners. for innovative businesses across New York, Philly, D.C., and Boston. Cool. How'd you get started with Pilot? I think so. It started before Pilot, where I was the head of IT at WeWork for the kind of first four years from 2010 to 2014 as we built a uh, co-working empire, as you would know yeah. it today. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, my main responsibility was bringing internet and telephone service to all of our locations, as well as scaling corporate infrastructure for our what grew to be you know, 250 and now 2,500 uh, employees around the world. Uh, and as that you know, was my primary responsibility, we learned that internet was the number one utility across all of our spaces, uh, and it couldn't go down. And for us to deliver that product to our members that depended on us, uh, we needed ultra-fast, super-reliable fiber service, um, and we had a really hard time getting it. Uh, to all of our buildings. So, you know, my job was to figure out how to make that possible. Uh, and I learned that throughout doing that, there was this huge white space in the industry where a truly small business that, you know, potentially used WeWork as, a, as an office space couldn't get this service on their own. Uh, and part of our, you know, growth story was figuring out how to do that to kind of tackle the problem for the members and give them a product they couldn't otherwise find for themselves. Mm. So remind me, you guys started when? 2011 or 2012? WeWork? Uh, no, uh, Pilot. 2014, actually. 2014. So it's three years in. Yep. What, is, what has been the sort of... Um, the evolution of a business. Cause I, we were talking just off off record, um, which we'll bring on record about <laughs> about how you and I we met digitally a number of times, and I so I remember always like always be pitching, always be pitching. <laughs> <laughs> so like, what's been that that evolution? Like the first the version of Pilot that started out in 2014 versus what it is now. Yeah, in 2014, we set out with a pretty specific um, goal of being the best internet provider for businesses in New York City. Uh, this is a market that I know really well. I'm from New York. I'm from Queens. And um, I felt like I had the most intimate understanding not only of the fiber infrastructure, but of the business landscape as well, uh, and a pretty good network of you know growing companies here uh, that would be ideal customers. Uh, so the initial, you know, scope was, hey, let's try to build this business as big as we can in New York, doing one thing really well, which is fiber internet. 
Uh, we've since expanded that uh, to, you know, three other cities, and we're looking at more right now. Uh, and in the process of doing that, we're also interested in tackling kind of broader broadband challenges. So one of the things we really want to do is enable um, kind of the next generation of internet provider um, to, you know, start servicing fiber to the home communities, fiber to the business communities uh, around the country, because what we've found is not only do we have a really great business, we have a really great connectivity model, um, and it's something we've taken you know, these last three years to build and perfect. Uh, so as we grow our business, you know, not only do we want to continue to be the best business internet provider, uh, we want to figure out how we can solve some of the more pressing problems for us uh, throughout the country and at home. Mm. So what, what goes into creating something like Pilot, really awesome internet, reliable internet, what goes into that? Oh, that's a doozy. Uh, <laughs> a lot of things. I think we started from the bottom with experience design. Um, I think the first thing we noticed was that there's a couple of things broken about how businesses buy internet today. Uh, and first is kind of a lack of recognition of any of the names in the industry or what they do or how they're differentiated. Uh, so we really started with, okay, how do we build transparency to this whole process, right? How do we spell out exactly what we can provide, exactly how much it'll cost, uh, and really spell out the entire installation and delivery process for the customer up front? Um, and how do we build a company that you feel comfortable working with, right? We don't want a call center. We don't want a you know one eight hundred number that goes you know God knows where. Uh, so we started with a really local pitch, right? This is your service delivery team. When you call us at Saturday on Saturday at three a.m., these are the people you're going to be working with. And starting local and reinforcing how that experience is crafted was really where we began. And then the second part was actually solving the tech problem, which is what is the problem with fiber infrastructure today. How do we gain access to infrastructure where we need it? And how do we actually solve some of the pain points around speed and downtime using software that we created in-house? Mm. So with that, how have you thought about, I mean, it sounds like the product has, has evolved and you have your, your buckets that you're building up. And how have you built out the team to support those elements? So you have like the customer service element. sounds like there's a strong component there. Then you obviously have the technical side. Do those things ever overlap? And if they do, what does that look like? So team, and then how do those components overlap? For sure. I think one of the most fascinating things about the kind of customer operations side of the house is that our technical support engineers could answer a billing ticket and our account managers could answer a complicated network question. And when you look at a, you know, evolved customer service operation, you have a call center, um, you get routed, right? You get routed to people who can do the same thing day in and day out, answer the same 10 questions and answer them really well. Um, we train our customer ops team to be far more broad. And when we started and our support infrastructure was much smaller, you know, it was really critical for those first account managers to really know how to troubleshoot a broad range of network-related problems. Because one of the things we hated in our kind of past lives was calling someone and then getting transferred, getting transferred, getting transferred again. And we think a key part of that experience is when you pick up, you know, you pick up the phone, you get a human who can help you. Uh, and so we've kind of, you know, that one sentiment lives on today, and it's why those technical engineers can answer the billing questions, because we just want to be that one-stop shop. I think the other thing that's really interesting is that no one has a traditional telecom ISP background on that team. Yeah, so I mean, we have you know traditional network engineers, but they don't come from ISPs. They might come from campus networks like universities. They might come from you know growing companies, but no one worked for an incumbent before, which is really exciting. Why is that though? Like, why is that intentional? It's definitely intentional, and I think the 
intentionality of it, if that's a word, <laughs> uh, not only spans on the support side, but also the construction side as well. Mm. Um, what we do is so unique in our promise to our customers and the work ethic and the quality of what we do and the style of how we do it is so unique that we'd rather train from scratch how to do the entire process right. than be molding someone who has done it a certain way for X period of time. No, that makes sense. That makes and that's sense. why traditionally, you know, in construction and technical support, et cetera, uh, we hire across all different industries. You could have uh, a retail background, a nonprofit background, a tech background. Uh, we really hire for the fit, you know, the fit being, do you want to undertake this problem with us? Do you realize how big of an issue it is? Have you worked at an office that doesn't have access to broadband? Mm. Do you care about solving that for the rest of the country? And if you do, and you're passionate about it, we want you, and we can train you to do the rest. Mm. Uh, and that's very different from how most tech companies and telecom companies alike hire. So from a, I guess, value standpoint or like a personality standpoint, what are some of the things you guys look for um, in your team? I imagine that communication is probably a pretty strong piece of it, given that customer support sounds like it's, it's one of the uh, pillars of the business. Absolutely. Uh, communication is very important only because it's hard to find a role within the organization that would theoretically have no communication with a customer. Mm. Even roles that we you know, truly think are behind the curtain, um, occasionally you'll pop out and you'll have a, an in-depth conversation with one of our customers, whether that's about you know, a billing practice or a legal question. Uh, and communication skills are critical for us. Mostly, I'd say we hire around you know, creativity, work ethic, ability to execute, um, and I think the core value that I like the most is accountability. Um, we face that as a service provider. You know, we're ultimately accountable to our customers. And internally, I think that accountability is manifested in how we go about, you know, navigating tight ropes where if we mess up, we will be accountable to customers. You know, that mistake might take a customer offline. That mistake might cause an inconvenience for our customers. And we want to be prepared to know that we're accountable as a company, and so are you in terms of why you made that choice, why the mistake happened, how we'll prevent it from happening again. So the thing I hire most for, I think, is, is accountability. In terms of like the, the culture you're, you're creating and those values and the accountability piece, how have you thought about all that like to, to create like this, uh, this foundation that sort of informs every new person that comes on and the folks who are already there? I think, you know, the thing we oversay and oversay and oversay is it's all about the customer. Mm -hmm. And telecom is one of those industries, again, and part of the reason why we don't hire from within the industry for the most part. Um, people put the network first, the assets first, um, and, it, and that model doesn't work. Uh, for us, you know, when we're thinking about how we prioritize you know, the growth of the business versus the upkeep of our existing network or improving our products and processes, the customer goes first. So anytime we're thinking about some new growth initiative, if there's something more pressing that is causing, you know, a, a service issue today or is likely to cause a service issue in the future, it's having that culture of, whoa, whoa, whoa we're going to pump the brakes, make sure everything is in order first before we advance to step two. Um, and, you know, it's, it's interesting being a venture-backed company where you're growing so quickly and then constantly saying we'd rather actually, you know, improve the current state of affairs. And, you know, if there is something on the network that needs to be adjusted or if we have to conduct maintenance, we try to prioritize that over the growth of the business. And the last thing we want to do is dilute the value we're creating by trying to grow too fast and, mm. you know, creating any sort of service issue. And that is a, a principle that touches every team. 
it touches our you know our sales team if you know we're trying to sell a product that's not ready yet we don't do that uh, if we're trying to sell into a building that we can't sell into yet we don't do that because we don't want to create an opportunity to let down that customer and similarly if we know that we don't have capacity or if we don't have the bandwidth to do a project literally and figuratively uh, we won't do it and so having those constraints in place throughout that hyper growth really puts an emphasis internally on why we do it which is for the customer do you ever have uh, pressure from your stakeholders as a as ceo of the organization to grow uh, i guess sort of uh in the to grow aggressively to grow even more aggressively um i imagine you do but i wonder i'm wondering like to what extent does that exist and how you deal with that well it's funny because half the time it would be my idea <laughs> where i have the the uh the eyes bigger than my appetite and then half the time uh, I'm the one asking introspectively why someone is pressuring us to do that so it's funny I, I go back and forth between yeah we want to do all this great stuff and then half the time I'm the person who's like we can't do that for this reason and that reason is the customer <laughs> um, so it's good that internally we have those checks and balances because mm. um, I would say internally we're all really eager to scale the business we're all very excited about you know, how much opportunity is in front of us. Um, but it takes a true team effort to make sure we don't have missteps and try to grow too quickly. Mm. And as CEO, you know, I, I set that expectation for the team in terms of how ambitious we are. And so, like I said, it's hard. Sometimes it's my idea, right? I'm saying, oh, it would be great to do this city. This is why the opportunity is so great. Let's do it right away. And I'm counting on a team of, you know, five to 100 people to explain to me why that's a terrible idea, mm. um, which is exciting. And, you know, it's kind of proof in the pudding that that culture works. What have you um, like to create that sort of, it's almost like you have folks who aren't yes men around you, which is... I would say no one is a yes man. No one is a yes man. So what would you advise to people, or not even that, how would you just, how do you build a team that doesn't have a bunch of yes men on it? How do I build a team that doesn't have a bunch of yes men? I think my favorite exercise, and this, you know, it came up in another conversation about how I how I hire. Um, you know, my favorite way to evaluate whether someone's a yes man is whether man or woman is, do they tell me what I would want to hear? Mm. Um, I would rehearse that conversation with me in their shoes, and think of, you know, if I were them, how would I pitch this to give me what I wanted to hear? And in my first few interactions with that person, if I reflectively listen and say. Hmm, I'm being sold, or that sounds too easy, they're probably a yes man. They're probably saying, I would want to fulfill your agenda or what I think it is. And if you need me in that moment, or if you have a good idea, that's what I'm here for. Use me, I'll say yes, I'm on board. My experience would be, you know, one, don't hire those people. And two, if you run into that, you know, kind of situational context, not in an interview, they're probably a yes man. And you'd have to make the choice as to whether or not you want them. There are plenty of good applications for people that are, say, hey, I'm here to do whatever you need me to do. All I need is the right direction and I'll, I'll hit go. Mm. Uh, but in our culture, you know, there's a lot of, I'd say, risk, checks and balances and ambition where we want to have that you know, intellectual challenge of saying, well, do we really want to do that? And that discourse is healthy, right? I think it breeds better products, better experiences and a better company. Um, but there are, not to say there's not a good use for Yes, men and yes, women. So of course. Speak. So, what is that? Um, 
I guess, what does that discourse look like? The, the debate that may exist when you're proposing something that the team is, is against or elements of the team are against, like, what does that decision-making process look like? Do you guys have sprints? Do you sit in a room? Is it like a fight to the death and you recruit a person to replace that person the following week? Like, how does that, how does that all work? I think it comes down to the kind of organizational pillars and who those stakeholders are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Sarah Bartley, who runs brand and experience for us, she's the voice of the customer, right? So if we say, hey, we're going to do San Francisco starting January 1, she will immediately say, you know, you have 30 seconds to explain to me how we're going to deliver the same exact caliber of experience 2,500 miles away, three hours time difference as we do on the East Coast. And if you can't do that, you know we're not ready, right? And so she's the voice of the customer. And, you know, our head of sales, Mike Egbert, might say, these are, this is the number of account executives we have today. This is our forecast to hire for 2018. If you actually think we could sell that opportunity, if we could take on additional territory with the amount of people we have, we'll do it. Mm. But again, you know, give, do it in 30 seconds. Tell me how it would make sense with our resources, and I'll consider it. If you can't, <laughs> you know we're not ready. Um, usually it's longer than 30 seconds. It's probably more like an hour. However, um, <laughs> if I can't figure it out then, yeah. then it's probably a bad idea that probably was my idea (laughs) (laughs) so you know there's it sounds like you've built or you're building a company that is that you're more like the orchestrator of as opposed to a dictator of that makes sense like dictator is harsh (laughs) dictator is harsh you're not the dictator is what i'm saying um you're you're sort of being guided by the team vice versa like how, how would you describe the interaction between you and the team Hmm. The analogy I like is steering versus rowing. Mm. Um, And what's funny about our team is when we first started the company, all of us rowed and steered at the same time. And we're now, you know, 100 plus employees, and it's becoming a culture of steering from the front rather than rowing. And for me, I'd say my position is to have a final say when one is needed, but to create a culture where a final say isn't needed. Mm. Um, I think I try to set the right macro expectations across the different pillars of the company, and pillars are really organizational more than anything, um, and make sure that they distill those down into tactical objectives. And then there are certain parts of the business that I'm just really interested in that I tend to spend more on the ground time with than others. And in those moments, if I see something that is stuck, I volunteer to make a captain's call if one is needed to move things along, but I like to see that they can arrive at those decisions on their own. And if it all it takes is a little bit more time, I'll try not to get involved. Um, but when it comes to our service delivery model, when it comes to new products, when it comes to our software, our network, I'm just really interested. When it comes to key hires on the team, I want to be involved. That's the stuff that makes or breaks the company at 10 people. It's the same stuff that makes or breaks the company at 1,000. But we basically have a culture where we're all actively trying to be enablers and not decision makers uh, because I think we have a really strong team that can do that on their own. So you touched on uh, elements of the business that you get really excited about. What What are some of those pieces? Yeah, I think, you know, our our physical product in terms of the actual fiber itself and all the associated accessories to it that actually go underground and go inside buildings is part of our competitive advantage. We have the smallest 
highest density fiber. You know, we can move a lot quicker, literally and figuratively, within the building and within the street um, because the physical product is more refined. And so I'm, I'm super interested in R&D on that front. And if we're going to change how we deploy within buildings, I'm interested in all the implications, right? Cost, time to install, long-term cost of ownership, uh, et cetera. I'm super interested in the software side, right? We build automation software that enables us to have those account managers doing very, very advanced tasks that could keep up with the CTO of a bank, right? Um, you would never know you're not talking to a network engineer because they have all the tools afforded to one in front of them in our operating system. So I really, I really care a lot, um, both in terms of my professional expertise as a network engineer, uh, but also as the shepherd of this new wave of, of ISP. Uh, I'm really interested in the products we put out, and most of them are internal to our team to deliver better service experience. I think those are my two favorite passion areas. And then I think my, I'd say, most critical area where I spend the most time debating and weighing decisions is on the people side. It's how we prioritize hires uh, across management teams, where we recruit, um, and really ultimately how we land on the yes or no decision for different hires. Um, that's where I really like to spend a lot of my time. Mm. So how have you, I mean, I guess, how have you prepared for that? How have you gotten better at it? Because I imagine when uh, you first shot that email to over, over to myself and Jason over at Alley, you weren't, uh, you know, you weren't where you are today, obviously, like mentally, 100 people used to hiring and firing, training folks. So what, is, what has been the path to, to get to where you are today? I think starting small is, is, the, first, is the first piece. Um, when you're five people, you learn how to recruit. You learn how to sell if you haven't already. Um, and you actually learn how bad you are at recruiting. And you, know, you learn that when you hire your first recruiter. Uh, and you learn from them. You, you actually observe you know, through osmosis and by participating their cadence for prospecting and sourcing. Um, you know, what tools are available to recruiters to help you know, enable you to find better candidates faster. Um, and then you realize, wow, over the last X years, you know, the network I've accumulated can be leveraged in this way right, where I don't have to go it alone. I have all these mutual connections. And then it's really refining what's the vision for the company and the role, and how do you get someone who is so happy and so comfortable on another team excited about what you're building. Um, but I think, you know, your first 10 hires, you are pouring your heart and soul into it because you don't know how to do anything else, right? And you're hoping that that pitch is enough to get them to come on board. And usually it is because you can't contain your excitement for what's happening. And I think what's interesting about as you grow, you become more tactical about that sales pitch, right? You're, you're really intentionally saying, this is why you're an awesome fit for the company. This is what we're building. You're not catering the pitch so much to them anymore as you know, your vision is more set in stone and your mission might be set in stone. Um, but you're learning, I think, to, to play a more active role in that conversation and use the people around you to help. Um, you know, we specifically cater our interview processes so that we know 
you have an engaged group of people in the conversation that aren't the wrong people. These are all people that would help sell the candidate on what we're building. They can speak to their strengths and weaknesses. They're probably in similar roles within the company. And I just remember when we were five or 10 people, it was way more disorganized and the decisions, you know, fell on one or two key individuals. Now we have, you know, a a four to five step process. Um, It's just interesting watching that evolve to be so much more organized and, and cadence driven. How's that happen in that four to five step process? Do you remember when it came to be? Somebody came to you with a spreadsheet and said, this is the four to five step process? Or Well, we hired, uh, we hired two really skilled recruiters. Okay. Um, you know, one focuses on our sales team. It's a, it's a very specific role, specific cadence, specific sourcing strategy. Um, and we wanted someone who had built a successful sales organization before. Uh, and then our second recruiter uh, handles all corporate roles. And I remember two weeks into having them, they're like, okay, throw this out the window. This is our new recruiting process going forward. This is how we organize interviews. You know, we have this awesome intake process for every new position we create at the company, which really teaches the recruiter why exactly we need the role, um, walks, you know, her through a day in the life of that candidate, uh, how we thought about our compensation ban that we're proposing, and then we design an interview plan that fits in this box just for that candidate, just for that job type. Um, and it's just an awesome amount of organization that when you're actually moving through a cadence with a candidate, oh, you want to come on site? I know exactly the four people you're going to meet with in this order. I'm going to tell you you know, how it's going to work. We have the full rundown organized. It's just a much more structured way to go about it. And you know, we interview you know, com- combined between phone and in person, probably over a hundred people a month. So, you know, it's uh you needed structure like that. You know, back in the day I would be trying to, you know, spearfish and say, Oh, you know, I really want NC to work for us. Uh I know him and I'm going to spend all of my blood, sweat, and tears on making that happen. Now it's like we have a hundred people to sort through, two hundred people, you need that structure. How could you refine the structure in the beginning? The hiring structure, the culture structure? Oh, that's a good question. Um Especially all that you know now. Hindsight 2020, I don't think there was too much we could have done. Um, <laughs> you know, when you hire your first 10, 20 people, it's about gut. Yeah. It's all about gut. And, you know, the recurring feedback from my team is, well, you can't just trust your gut anymore. Um, and I kind of disagree. You know, I kind of think to myself, you'll make wrong decisions, but you'll be really confident in the ones you do make for that very reason. Uh, and I think even with a more structured process, if we had over-documented you know, the exact job description or the exact skill set we're looking for, I think we would have precluded ourselves from finding candidates that mm. don't necessarily check all the boxes. Mm. And I think you only excuse me, are able to do that when you're willing to trust the gut, when you know, hey, this person has never worked with fiber before, but I know, I know in my heart of hearts, this person is the right person for the role. If you're over-organized at the beginning in those, you know, first five to 10 people, you might find the wrong cultural fit because you checked the, you know, fiber experience box and you, you know, trapped yourself in that school of thought. Um, Now I think it just having that level of organization increases the bar. It raises the bar for the quality of that person. We still want to find that kind of cultural marriage. Mm. And in order to do that, you know, for that person to be a positive contributor to our culture and have all the experience, it's just a, you know, a smaller group of individuals where early on, 
I stuck to my guns and said, I'm willing to train you. You know, you don't have that experience, but I know you're going to be the right ad for the team. So I think, I don't think there is much I would have done to improve mm. it. And I think any entrepreneur should stick to their guns when it comes to, to hiring the first, you know, five, 10, 20 people. What's, what's been the, uh, the most challenging thing of growing this and growing this business? Ooh, uh, as a doer, as a rower, learning how to delegate effectively across a mm. hundred people, uh, and then learning to cope with, I'd say, the reduced efficiency per person as you add all of that necessary infrastructure. Um, you know, we joke that if the company were five people today, you know, we could really, you know, run run amok and do some stuff really fast. And we were able to do that when we were five people, and you know. 1% of the customer base or whatever it was, um, but it's not practical. Uh, there is no advancement if we're actually, um, you know, trusting ourselves to self-prioritize every necessary task for service mm. delivery and all that other stuff. Um, I think the biggest challenge is, yeah, if you're a doer, and I am, and I imagine most entrepreneurs are, how do you inspire others to do the way you would do it and to improve upon that? Um, if you just have yes men and yes women, um, that will get old really fast. If you say, okay, cool, all we're going to do is bake bread, and you're going to bake a 1,000 loaves of bread today and a 1,000 loaves tomorrow, how many days do you think it'll take for that person to say, hmm, maybe this isn't for me? And so I think as we, as we inspire others to, to row, um, we have to self-juggle their career progression as well. And I think another challenge is taking that team and knowing what it'll look like in two years and three years and four years out mm. and how those people who are so important to the success of the company today fit into that in their career development and their personal development. Um, you know, assembling the team and then learning how to let go is one thing. And then remembering that these are the people who are running the show now, you know, they're, they're, they're on the field playing the game every day. Um, and then they need to develop. So how do we accommodate that as well? Mm. That's awesome, man. So I want to shift over into our quick fire questions. Uh, so it's typically a quick question, quick answer. And I, I didn't preface, I didn't uh, give you a heads up this time, so you're going to be a little bit surprised, I think. They usually get a heads up, I feel. Yeah, you didn't get a heads up this like time. I the short end of the stick here. <laughs> it's nothing crazy, though. It's nothing crazy, though. So you ready? I think so. All right. <laughs> All right, so uh, Biggie or Tupac? Biggie. Why? Uh, style. Uh, I think style more than anything. Um, it's more aggressive. Um, I grew up on Biggie in, in high school. Um, personal preference, first exposure, Biggie for sure. Got it. Uh, your spirit animal? Giraffe. Giraffe. That's the first time I've asked that question. I've heard giraffe. Bad rap. They just get a bad rap. <laughs> I aspire to be as tall as a giraffe because I'm super freaking short. And uh, they get a bad rap. They're not useless. They're creative, you know, long-necked lizards <laughs> of the wild. That's what I want to be when I grow up. I respect that. Um, favorite book? Ooh. Catch-22. Mm. Why? Um, I think it's a, it's a compelling war story uh, that does not dwell into, I'd say, becoming a documentary. Um, for me, I have always had a hard time reading fiction, and I cannot read anything that is not set in, I'd say, a real-life predicament. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, war and conflict is really exciting. Like, I would love Sun Tzu, um, but any non, 
imaginary. Uh, you know, I don't like kingdoms. I don't like dragons. I can't do Game of Thrones. If I want to read fiction, I want to read about something that has a real life setting. Mm. Um, you had actually said Lord of the Flies before. Like that is stretching, you know, my my uh, my fictional imagination. And I can't read biographies, so I'm trapped in this weird genre. <laughs> uh, a friend of mine introduced me to the book, fell in love. That's awesome. Um, so you're put in a situation where you can only eat one meal for the rest of your life. What meal is that? Ooh. Skirt steak, broccoli, mashed potatoes. All the food group staples. <laughs> <laughs> My mother would be proud. There you go. Um, so now you retire, if you retire. But let's say you're put in a situation, you need to retire. You have to retire. And you're you're going to be living lovely. You've got billions in the bank. Life is good. What do you do? What are you working on? Nothing to do with a computer. <laughs> um, yeah, if I really had the liberty to do that, um, I'd probably throw in the technology towel. Um, something with my hands. Uh, probably build a boat. Build a boat. I yeah. like that. I like that. I can see you building a boat, building a table, building a house. I'll do all those things, <laughs> and then I'll learn to sell them, and then I'll, you know, one day I'll say, back in the day, I did this fiber stuff, now yeah. I sell craft tables. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so before I let you go, do you have any, any final words, anything else you'd like to leave us with? I think the, the recurring theme for me in, in this podcast has just been getting from, from zero to 100, and I think it all hinges on the fate from zero to 10. And the thoughts rolling in my head right now that I'd probably reinforce is that there are no right or wrong answers. And the processes that work for us now at 100 uh, are not designed to work for another entrepreneur at 10 or at zero. Um, and to just, yeah, trust your gut. Uh, don't have yes men and yes women. Um, and then be prepared to level up and say this isn't the right approach for 20 or 50 or 100. That's awesome, man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me.